Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to be talking to a guy named John Washington who uh, wrote an interesting book called The Case for Open Borders. Yeah, I heard uh, Ryan Graham interviewed him and I thought it was really interesting and I had some additional questions and we listened to some of the book and that interview and all that. So it'll be, now, obviously it's very relevant given the debate that's happening. Now, right now I'll be clear up front with everybody. You're going to want to sign up. You're going to want to watch this because I don't agree with open borders. So it might be a bit of a debate. Yeah, because he forced me to think about what are my actual policy preferences when it comes to the border. And I wrote down, here's how I would address it if I was emperor for a day. Mm -hmm. And it's not open borders. So it'll be interesting to have a back and forth, see if he can change my mind. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I'm open, but I'm also kind of stubborn. And I think I nailed it with what I prefer. Yeah. Well, one of the things that he argues that I think is really uh, important in this moment is just the fact that, you know, putting aside the humanity and the immorality of our current border system and certainly of what Democrats were trying to get Republicans to agree to, which was just like horrific. The, it was their own ideas. Right. And that it was such a bizarre situation, which we can talk to him about that, too. But all of the framing of immigration in this country from the news media is all that it's a crisis that migrants want to come to this country when it would really be a crisis if everyone wanted to leave this country. And you can see this internally. Places that are losing population are struggling. These are the places where you see the highest rates of crime and addiction and all sorts of social ills, where generally places that are growing are places where you have more opportunity and things are going comparatively well. That doesn't mean that there aren't bumps and challenges and things you have to deal with, especially if you have a massive population boom at one time. But for me, it was important thinking through his arguments, even in places where I disagreed, reframing this whole just like migration is bad, immigrants are bad, it's a bad thing and a challenge and a problem for the country versus actually the real crisis would be if we were in the other direction and we were mass losing population and people were fleeing. That would be a real crisis to have to do. I mean, with. I would say we could save this for the conversation yeah. with him, but I would say obviously the answer is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think he agrees with that, but we can get into it with him. It'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah, sure. Before Looking we do that, uh, big news, Marianne Williamson campaign over. Yeah, what are your so thoughts? officially suspended. I mean, I just have to say, like, I'm nothing for love for Marianne as a human being, um, for the courage that she showed at a time when no one else was willing to step out at the incoming that she has taken. So, you know, I mean, listen, I can nitpick about this or that or, you know, issues that I would have approached. I think she deserves all of the respect and admiration in the world for being willing to take this on. I think she has exposed what an anti-democratic um, shambles the Democratic Party is. I mean, it's just they, from every, from the jump, collaborating with their media organs, making sure she didn't get a good fair hearing, that people had no idea she was even running, that, you know, there were states where they just decided we're just not even going to have a primary, we're just going to anoint Joe Biden. So kudos to her for putting herself out there and doing everything she possibly could to give uh, Democratic voters and the American people a choice, especially Kyle at a time when how many videos are we seeing on like a daily basis now of Joe Biden completely unable to formulate a basic thought or telling stories about foreign leaders that died decades ago thinking that they're still alive and well or not able to even find the word Hamas in order to explain his response on a potential ceasefire. It's just when you look at this, you're like, what the hell are we doing? And so, you know, just absolute kudos to her at this point for having had the courage to at least give it a shot. So just a few things to point out real quick. Yeah. She and her campaign were blocked from getting voter data in various states after already paying for it. That's right. And then they refused to give 
uh, any sort of refund after the fact. She was blocked from talking to various college Democrat groups in various states. As you alluded to, there were four so far Democratic primaries where they canceled it up front. In one instance in Florida, uh, everybody went. It was uh, Dean Phillips, Marion Williamson, Jenk Uger went to go sign up on a certain day. And they go, oh, sorry, the date passed. They're like, what are you talking about? The date is in like a, a week from now. Right. And they're like, no, but we changed it without telling anybody. Right. And so now you can't get on the ballot. So mm-hmm. these are very, very anti-democratic moves. There's a lot to criticize there. But beyond that, the biggest factor to me, and I think there's legitimate criticisms of her and her campaign. There's certainly things you could point out like, hey, you could have done this better or that better. But to me, the biggest factor was, I always say this about the media, the difference between the media loving you and hating you, it's a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal because as long as you're getting some noise around your campaign mm-hmm. it can spark a backlash effect where people start to love you even if the media is shitting on you 24 7 yeah in the case of marianne what i feared the most is what happened which is total indifference mm-hmm. wall of indifference they pretend like you don't exist mm-hmm. and in a scenario like that it's it's pretty much impossible to break through that's right so after watching this campaign my takeaway from it and i've said this on my show as well is that I fear that in order for a lefty to actually win, it needs to be either somebody who's super undeniable, like Bernie Sanders, who was a senator for 312 years before he ran, because it's like, he's a senator. What are you going to do? He's just serious in the political game, whether or not you want to acknowledge it. I think they could even disregard and disrespect Congress people. That's what happened with Dean Phillips. They're like, you're, you're, you're a peon. You're nobody. Get out of here. You would either need a senator or you would need an A-list celebrity maybe a B-list celebrity you can get away with in order to break through. So if mm-hmm. somebody like John Stewart ran, the media wouldn't be able to keep the cameras off of John right. Stewart because he's super entertaining. He already has that gravitas and charisma about him. Right. And so that would be undeniable. But after watching this unfold, that really is my ultimate conclusion is that they are always going to disrespect the left. They're always going to swap the left aside, act like you're unserious, act like your candidates are ridiculous, pay you no mind whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think they actually learned the lesson of Bernie Sanders a little bit when and they realize our hate fest almost didn't work that, you know, he still got like 45 percent of the vote yeah. with us hating on him relentlessly. True. So they went the path of indifference, which they felt like they could get away with when it comes to Marianne Williamson. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, the way out of it, I think you need either a senator who can sneak in and be taken seriously or an A-list celebrity. And at that point, I'll take either the love from the media or the hate, because either one, I think, will create a backlash effect and make it so that people, you know, actually give this lefty candidate a chance. But to your point, yeah, Biden can't even talk anymore. Every day it's a new gaffe. Every day his policies get worse and worse. And I do think, look, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I do think there will come a time where people look back and they go, Damn, Marion Williamson and Dean Phillips were kind of right. And they were stepping up to the plate here when nobody else would. I mean, they've never looked more prescient than right now. And I think it's only going to become more clear that they were canaries in the coal mine. I mean, they were sounding warnings that are coming true before our eyes. I mean, not only, listen, Dean is basically, and this is why it's not just about the left. It's just anyone who was going to challenge Joe Biden because Dean Phillips is not a leftist. And his whole case is basically like, I agree with Joe Biden on basically everything. I'm just young. But this guy is about to die before our eyes and he's going to lose to Donald Trump. And check, check, check. Like, it's really very difficult to deny at this point. 
Biden is losing in every key swing state. Um, there's no real plan to make up that ground. Um, this is the first time since 2004 a Republican has consistently led in the national polls. It's just utterly pathetic. As I mentioned before, you know, we're watching in real time as his brain like melts out of his ears. It, it's sad. It's getting to the point now. It's getting to like Diane Feinstein levels where I don't even feel angry at much as much at him as I do the people around him who are enabling this as effective elder abuse. Like that's the level that we're getting to in terms of what his public appearances look like. So absolutely right there. But then also on the policy front, you know, it's never been more clear that the more leftist positions that Marion has staked out, where she has, you know, made clear breaks from Joe Biden on economics and on foreign policy, that that is also incredibly important and was also incredibly prescient. So, like I said, nothing but kudos and admiration to to her. And also, listen, Dean Phillips, we had, you know, back and forth with him on Israel. I had that with him a couple of times, but kudos to him also for for stepping in and being willing to do it. You know, the fact that he was a congressman that no one really heard of meant that he also could be basically ignored. And to your point, Kyle, you know, CNN, they gave town halls to every Tom, Dick and Harry who stepped up in the Republican side, whether they're getting zero percent of the vote or one percent of the vote or whatever. Marion and Dean Phillips at times were polling, you know, significantly higher than that in the Democratic primary. And it just was completely, completely ignored. MSNBC didn't even have Dean Phillips on until after the South Carolina primary was already over. And had the nerve to be to him like, oh, well, why didn't you do better? He's like, this is literally the first time your viewers even learned that I existed. Rachel Maddow had some segment, you know, I think during on the night of New Hampshire where she was joking around about, oh, I'm so proud of myself that I know Dean Phillips name because he's so irrelevant. And she's called uh, Marianne. Marianne Williams got her name completely wrong. It's just utter contempt and indifference. And listen, it was effective. Um, Unfortunately, independent media just isn't large enough or doesn't hold enough sway with the Democratic base in particular right now to overcome that total blackout indifference from the mainstream press. Yeah. All right. At risk of uh, changing gears too quickly here. Okay. <laughs> so there's an Oklahoma state senator, I believe, by the name of Dusty Devers. That's his real name. I was okay. going to say, are you sure it's a real person? It's a real person. I swear it's a real person. <laughs> this isn't some and AI deep fake situation. No. This guy has been in the news a lot recently for various horrifically stupid positions he's taken. So just mm-hmm. to give you guys a little taste of it, um, he wants women who get abortions to be charged with murder. He wants to ban contraception. He wants um, to ban no-fault divorce. He's basically like a hardcore Christian nationalist. Okay. Just super extreme, very far right on social issues, incredibly restrictionist in every way imaginable. Um, I think he even proposed a bill that would outlaw sexting. Oh my God. I mean, you can't like, what? you know, it's it's super ironic because the the Republicans always talk about we're the party of small government. I literally cannot imagine a bigger government than the government Dusty Devers wants getting right. inside your private That's life. That's going to track every one of your texts to find if they're like sexually uh, explicit or not. The guy's this a is psycho. like morality police insanity total psycho wow you know and uh, hilarious that oftentimes these people on the right pretend like they're in favor of freedom and the democrats are against it i mean this is like colossal restrictions on freedom but um the big thing he's been in the news for recently is that he's uh really standing his ground on his take that pornography should be outlawed completely wow So you have these laws popping up in various states now where it's Mm -hmm. like, you need to send your driver's license ID number in in order to jack off. And a bunch of states are doing it. By the way, it's going to happen in more conservative states. I'm just warning everybody right now. They're cracking down and it's going to keep coming. Okay. 
So he wants to go a step further than that. So I have a, a clip here for you. He was on Michael Knowles' Daily Wire show, and here's what he had to say. Every person looking at porn knows that it is condemning them. There's not a single person who looks at it and says, oh, this is a good thing for me. This is a good thing for the people that I'm watching here. This, what I'm seeing happen here, even if it's less violent, uh, is a good thing. There, nobody is saying that because they have a conscience. They're created by God, and their conscience is either approving them or accusing them before the holy character of God. So they already know, number one. Secondly, porn is defiling. And what we see in the bedroom spills out into the outdoors. What happens indoors is always going to go outdoors mm. with porn. I mean, you know, there's so many ways to respond to this. First of all, think of all the problems that we have in this country. Mm -hmm. All of the problems. I mean, medical bills is like the top cause of bankruptcy. I don't even know how many thousands of bridges and roads are crumbling right in front of our eyes. We're funding like 67 wars overseas. Yeah. You know, they're trying to rush through more aid to Israel so they can continue their genocide. Like all these things that are going on. And he's like, stop jacking off, goddammit. What am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do, supposed to do with this? And by the way, I go, I go a step further. He's like, everybody knows porn is defiling. Wrong! I will make an affirmative case that porn is a good thing. Would you rather live in a country with, like, a bunch of pent-up 20-something-year-olds mm -hmm. who have to jack off to the a kitchen table leg that sort of looks like it's curvy? <laughs> Would you rather live in that society or live in a society where somebody could wake up in the morning, take care of their business, and all of a sudden they have a lovely personality and they're being nice to everybody around them? Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? I think there are tremendous sociological benefits to pornography and everybody just pretends, oh, it's so bad, it's so immoral, it's so wrong. Fuck off, get out of our lives, man. Yeah, it, I, you know, there's this whole right-wing like war on men thing, like argument that's being made. This is a war on men. <laughs> yeah, this is a war on men. Dudes alone to like watch some porn and jerk off, please. I don't understand. I, you know, it actually, it feels almost like a throwback to me to the 90s moral panics over like, you know, gangster rap or whatever. Like right. that's kind of what it, the vibe. And um, it really cuts against the new image of the right that they were trying to create of like, oh, it's the left that's trying to police your behavior and police your words and it's all up in your business. And, you know, that was like compelling argument for a time. But how are you going to argue that when you're literally suggesting like, you know, banning all porn and policing your sexuality and requiring you to upload your driver's license before you jerk off? I don't know. It doesn't seem like a winning argument to me. I'll just say that. I feel bad for guys who maybe are struggling mental health wise or with getting a job or what have you and they get pulled down this rabbit hole online where you have all these like influencers pretending to care about them and they mm -hmm. have all these ideas like you know whatever it may be do you take your vitamins do a cold plunge whatever don't jack off <laughs> there's so many of these like false gurus and prophets mm -hmm. out there that like with this one weird trick everything in your life will get back to being better right and it's like they're all fucking lying to you they're all lying to you. I got bad news for you. If you tried really hard and you went, let's say, 12 days without jacking off, that accomplished nothing but making you super fucking horny and probably distracted by day two or three. And uh, I would go here. If, ever, if everybody's going to be a fake guru, I'll be a fake guru, too. You have to jack off three times a day and then you'll be happier. <laughs> if you just jack off three times a day, your mind will be clear. Mm -hmm. There'll be stress relief. No more anxiety. You'll be able to handle tasks as they come your way. So I just don't.
It's better advice than the alternative. Yes. It, it absolutely <laughs> is better advice than the alternative. But the difference is I'm not actually going to lie to them and say that will fix all of your problems. Yeah. It'll just give you a little bit more of a clear mind. So, look, don't one one thing everybody should know at this late date is you cannot wage a war against nature and biology. You just mm-hmm. can't do it. You just can't do it. Yeah. So stop trying. It's not going to you're not going to be a better person. And then, you know, with like these no fat community, they're like on their high horse acting like oh, I figured something out, which makes me a higher being than you. And it's like, no, you fucking did it. Yeah. You're just a horny little freak who's refusing to touch your dick. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, I don't, You guys can go and watch Sagar and I had a whole debate about some of this this week because there was this article that NPR wrote about nofap.com and interviewed these guys who had like come out on the other side of it and were like, you know, I really wasted a lot of time and really stressed myself out and made me feel horrendous about myself because I couldn't go without jerking off. Like I would try so hard and I couldn't do it. And it was all I would think about is like, how do I keep my, how do I keep from jerking off? And they'd convince <laughs> themselves too that they were quote addicted to porn when actually their like porn viewing habits were perfectly within the realm of normal. So they were being on top of whatever else they were going through and struggling with, which I'm sure was, you know, very real and, you know, things that people go through and that men go through. On top of all of that, they also had to deal with the shame of thinking that they were failing in these key ways because they were, you know, occasionally watching porn and jerking off and like a normal human being. So... Yeah, the war on men isn't the idea of that article exposing that these no fat people are lying to men. It's the people who are lying to men and who are putting all this extra stress on them for things that are like perfectly normal, reasonable, healthy behavior. So I'm going to ask you in a second, what what exactly is his position? Because that sounds preposterous. But to me, it's as absurd as people's like, oh, you know, I'm addicted to jacking off. Are yeah. there some people who can take it too far and they're literally jacking off like seven times a day or I'm something? Sure there are people who have genuine addiction and that's yeah. a different thing. Yeah, but I'm sure it's the same percentage as the percentage of people who have other addictions, sure. right? Maybe yeah. it's anywhere between 1% and 10%, maybe at worst 15% of the people who jack off, who like jack off too much. Right. So it's not really that big of a problem. It, right. Uh, like and to me, it's as absurd. The thing is, too, as long as you're able to, like, control yourself to do it in a private space on your own time. Then you're not addicted. Yeah. You're not addicted in that scenario. I don't think the there's a problem. Deal, but know? to me, it's as absurd when people talk about like, oh, you know, I have to stop doing this. It's like arguing like I'm addicted to pissing. I keep pissing every day. Or like I'm addicted to shitting. Mm. I shit at least once a day every day. I must stop this. It's like. There's not much you can do about that, bro. Right. And if you don't whack off or have relations with somebody, then guess what? Over a certain amount of time at some point, it's going to come out. Yeah. Right? You're yes. going to wake up and be in a pile of goo and be like, what the fuck? This yeah, is kind of gross. Wet dreams. Like, that's your body. It's like, you could have handled that like and had some fun in the process thing. beforehand. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah. All this shame around sex and sexuality. And I mean, it's no surprise that it comes from some, you know, Christian national crazy person. Yeah. Too. The, the idea it makes you like more like superhuman or something if you don't jack off. That, that's absolutely absurd. All you're going to do is just be more horny and think about it more often. So what actually is his... I'm struggling to understand his position. Soccer's what was Soccer's position? position in this debate? I don't understand what he's saying. I don't want to I want to unfairly characterize. You and everyone else should go and watch his monologue and watch our exchange. But 
You know, the monologue was based on this article about these online subcultures of dudes who are like in community of trying to not masturbate and, you know, led by this nofap.com, like these forums that are, you know, kind of spearheading this quote unquote movement and lying to these dudes saying, oh, if you don't jerk off, your testosterone levels are going to be different and girls are going to love you and you're going to feel better. And it's got all these health benefits, et cetera, which is just garbage, right? That's just lies. And um, so that's what the whole article is about. It interviews guys. It interviews health experts, et cetera. And um, there is sort of some incidental commentary in this article about porn usage and some of the things like I was saying that some of these guys have been convinced that they were also addicted to porn when they weren't. They were, you know, within like very normal, reasonable bounds of porn usage as well. And so Sauber's monologue was mostly about the porn part of it. And they tied it into basically like, this whole article is sort of like a psyop from a big porn industry that doesn't like these big laws. Porn? Yeah, that are that doesn't like these laws that are being again. I don't want to be on for it. People watch it and listen to his argument because I don't want to be unfair here um, when he's not here to defend himself. But I was like, no, that's not even in this article. So he sort of imagined a conspiracy around it that. To me, on its face, I'm like, it's if if you are worried about men and you're worried about this quote unquote war on men, to me, it seems like a good thing to be saying, hey, these dudes that you think are telling you the truth and are trying to help you are just lying to you. And you're putting all this additional stress on your life. Like, again, just leave these poor guys alone. They're fine. Leave them alone and let them jerk off. And, you know, if there are other positive avenues or things that they're struggling with, deal with those things. But so anyway, that was the crux. I was very, I was honestly confused. And I said that too. I was like, I'm confused by your monologue because the thing that the article is about is not at all what you're talking about in your monologue. Yeah. It sounds to me like he's inverting the dynamic there. So the people who are like in community trying not to masturbate, it's like, well, that's the war that's being waged on you is the fact that people are trying to convince you that there's a problem with you and you need to stop jacking right, off exactly. when there isn't a problem there's with no you. problem with you. And you know, I, I don't know that, that, Putting shame on people is a really wicked thing to do. It's a shame is a very powerful emotion. And to put shame on people for something that is perfectly normal and healthy and perfectly fine when I'm sure they have other problems they're dealing with is is a really, really evil thing to yeah, do. Yeah, and I get look, I guarantee you, if you're out there and you're struggling with something like this, there's nothing wrong with you. There, if you feel like you have issues in other areas that you need to address. Address those issues, but don't wage a war on mother nature because you're not going to win that war and it's only going to make you feel worse. And the people telling you you need to wage that war are absolute charlatans. Mm -hmm. They're charlatans. They're con men. They do not have your best. Interest they do not have your best interest at heart. So don't listen to it. There's nothing wrong with you. Whack off whenever you feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now I got uh, one. Another one. hard turn. <laughs> uh, is this one a hard turn? Let's I mean, see. I guess it's not in a way because it's more pseudoscience nonsense. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm sure you heard that the other day um, news came out that the king actually has cancer. They were apparently doing some unrelated medical procedure. He had an enlarged prostate and they were mm. doing something about the enlarged prostate, which, by the way, I don't know what you do about an enlarged prostate. Like, what do they do? Do they give... Do they have to do surgery to de-enlarge the prostate? Because obviously they were looking inside somehow. I don't know if it was x-rays or whatever. But they found cancer while in the process of doing that. Now, what we do know is apparently it's not prostate cancer. Okay. It's some other cancer, right? But 
my takeaway from that, and I'm not a doctor, just so everybody knows, so any doctor would know better than me on this, but my suspicion is, if you're looking in the prostate area, and there's cancer there, and it didn't originate from the prostate, that's not a good sign, because it had to start somewhere else and metastasize, mm. right? Unless somehow they found in the blood work or something he had cancer, like, I, have no idea. I don't know, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, it would be surprising if uh, he was really at a late, that it didn't get caught earlier, just because I would assume the royal family is undergoing a lot of medical screening. So here's the problem with that, okay. right? So there's a royal expert by the name of Tom Bauer, who was on some British uh, TV network, mm. and he was talking about the king's cancer diagnosis. And he says, quote, the king will not be one for chemotherapy. He has always argued against it. He's a great believer in natural herbs, potions, and things like that. Potions. Bro. Bro. So uh, the king, I mean, he was, what, coronated like seven and a half minutes ago. He's barely been king for any time at all, right? <laughs> Wasn't it very recently? Yeah, very recently. Well, actually, it was on our wedding day. That's it right. It was on our wedding May day. May 6th? Yeah. There you go. So that, that was not that long ago, right? Yeah, that's I forgot about that. And uh, look, if he's not going to do the actual proper treatment, it'll be interesting to see if they can convince him to do it. But, like, remember what happened with uh, Tim Cook? Right? Mm-hmm, is that his name, Tim Cook? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Apple right. guy? Yeah, that's He right. was all like into everything he natural. He all the like, yeah, traditional like, medicine. I'm going to eat a fruitarian diet and do all these other things to try to not die. And then he died. Yeah. Because he did. I Look, I don't. To me, this is actually like a crisis level type thing mm. where people. Look, it's there is a healthy skepticism of modern medicine. Big pharma. Profit driven. Of course, especially the profit angle of it, for sure. But there's a problem when that skepticism crosses the line and becomes cynicism, where it's like, they are lying about absolutely everything, and anybody who presents an alternative must be telling the truth. And it's like, you know what? I got bad news for you. The alternatives usually are bigger... Con men. Because <laughs> there's no regulations, there's no rules. Like, nofap.com, like literally. I know. Yeah. I know. And, you know, I, I have the uh, personal experience with this with my dad. You know the story about my dad mm-hmm. with the, uh, you know, his back was hurting and he went to the chiropractor because I was, hey, my back hurts. Let me go to the chiropractor and get it like fixed up and cracked or whatever the, the fuck. And he went there and the guy kept telling him, come back, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. If there's a problem, you know, just keep showing up. We'll fix it. Anyway, come to find out, eventually he had to go to the emergency room. And when, when he went to the emergency room, they did an x ray and they found out he's got cancer that started in his lungs and metastasized to his spine. That's what the pain was. But the chiropractor who, and you know, there are some chiropractors who are legit in the fact that they know they're glorified backcrackers. Mm-hmm. Others pretend like, no, this is real medicine and, you know, I'll solve all your ills by aligning your spine or whatever. That's what this guy was. He kept telling my dad, come back, we'll fix it. And because he did that, it actively prevented my dad from going to a real doctor. And then you could argue he died sooner because of that. Because by the time they treated the cancer or tried to, it was stage four, he was done. Yeah. Right. And that's like alternative medicine versus real medicine. And here you have somebody, you're from the royal family. You have to be worth, you're worth a tremendous amount of money. You have, you know, access to all of the knowledge in the world. And like, you're actively choosing. No, the the real doctors I want nothing to do with. And let me go take some fucking herbal tea or some shit that's crazy to me yeah i mean it's one thing if you have assessed your options and you're like you know what i know my time on this earth is limited i don't want to be sick and going through the you know side effects of chemotherapy for the last of my days and so i'm making a conscious choice about the way i want to live out the rest of my days that's one thing but thinking that you are actually treating the cancer 
by avoiding the chemotherapy and doing a juice cleanse or um, taking a potion or whatever. I mean, that's just that's just sad that you would be have been lied to to that extent. And, you know, it's it's sick. The the people who push this stuff, especially the ones who know better. But it is it is such a glaring blind spot um, in the like, you know, the medical skeptic community, whether vaccine skeptic or whatever, that there's so much skepticism applied to things that actually do have to go through some process. I mean, their profit motive skews everything, but they do have to go through some process and prove some level of efficacy and there is some procedure. Whereas these quote unquote natural remedies, I mean, it really is just like total wild west snake oil salesman, almost no regulation. And there's so much more trust placed in that which is a way for way worse um, procedure and way fewer regulations than on the in the traditional area. Yeah, what I always say is, like you pointed out, you have to be skeptical of the profit motive when it comes to mm-hmm. big pharma. Just get rid of the profit. I mean, it should be a totally nonprofit thing. It should be. I always say nationalize big pharma because it's mostly funded by government money anyway, all the research and development. So why should a pharma company be able to swoop in, buy up the patent rights, and then make all the money on the back right. end when we're the ones who invested in it on, a, on the front end? It makes no sense. So the problem is the profit margin. But that doesn't mean that antibiotics don't work. They work. Right. That doesn't mean that painkillers don't work. They well, they work. Also, that doesn't mean the anti-anxiety meds don't work. They work. Doesn't the mean that antiviral meds don't work. are making money too. Like that's the, the and like you said, there's no regulation, there no regulation there. Yeah. No rules, no regulations, no anything. They could just flat out lie. The entire supplement industry, there's no regulation of it. Yeah. But when it comes to, at least when it comes to big pharma, they do have some degree of regulations and and some rules and it has to go through double blind, you know, studies and things of that nature. And does that mean that everything comes out of there is good and works? No. Does that mean that it is much more likely to be something that works versus alternative medicine? Yes. The reason why it's called alternative medicine is because it didn't make the cut to be just medicine. That's why it's called alternative medicine. <laughs> so people need to, to realize that there's even bigger con men and snake oil salesmen in that realm. Oh, yeah. And here you have a king who doesn't even realize that. Yeah, it's wild stuff. Yeah. So go ahead. Why don't you introduce our guest now? All right. We're excited to talk today to John Washington, author of a new book, The Case for Open Borders. He's also a regular contributor to The Nation and also to The Intercept. Let's get to it. John, great to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, So I wondered if we could start by having you weigh in on the uh, utter insanity that unfolded this week. I'm sure people are aware, but basically Democrats decided that in order to try to get Ukraine and Israel aid passed, they were going to give Republicans almost everything that they wanted in terms of border psycho enforcement, crackdown, shutdowns, et cetera. And Republicans decided because, you know, Trump wants to run on this issue and he told them not to vote for it, that they were going to vote it down. And then Democrats ran around taking a victory lap, acting like somehow this was a great thing for them, that they had just accepted the entire Republican framing of like border and chaos. And this is a great crisis, et cetera. Wanted to hear from you, um, given your expertise on immigration and how to think about these debates as well, what you made of this whole dynamic. Well, uh, none of it was surprising. Uh, The Democrats have tried this move a handful of times, um, caving into right demands and hoping that that would supposedly build political capital so they could get something passed. But the things that they were hoping to get passed in this bill um, were few. And the, the, the things that were even remotely good for 
immigrants or for the country were really few. Um, there was, you know, some extension of uh, a legal counsel to especially young immigrants or minor immigrant children. Um, but you could really count the decent policy uh, moves on one hand in this bill. Most of it was an enormous crackdown. And, you know, I said it's not surprising, but again, like you think like where the rhetoric started in this administration or the way that Biden was campaigning, mm -hmm. that people would have been able to hold him a little bit further to those those the way that he was approaching immigration, but really he's he's completely caved. The administration completely caved. He was boasting that he would be willing to shut the border down on day one if this bill was passed, as if the border has a switch and you can just turn it down or shut it off. Um, what's what's I think maybe perhaps most galling besides the fact that Democrats have played this move before and have failed, is that the policies that the Republicans were proposing, the, the crackdown measures, the anti-immigrant draconian raising the threshold of asylum or um, giving new authority or renewed authority rather to immediately exp expel migrants back across the border, that hasn't worked either. Um, some of these things have actually been litigated in the courts and have been ruled to be unconstitutional. And the way that they have tried to deter people by being able to expel them immediately also didn't work. We saw this mm. very recently. We saw this during the Trump administration, the, the second half of the Trump administration um, and the beginning of the Biden administration with the implementation of Title 42, where they relied on this antiquated public health law to immediately push people back across the border. They were really targeting asylum seekers. And what we saw in the months immediately after that was an increase in border crossing. So these deterrence measures just don't work. So even if the Republicans got what they wanted, they wouldn't have gotten what they wanted because it wouldn't have been working. And we know that. And also, of course, that then Trump wanted to torpedo this whole thing. I mean, it really lays bare the political nature on both sides of the aisle of what border and immigration politics have become. Let me ask you this. Are the Republicans just lying when they go out there and say, like, this bill is an open borders mm -hmm. bill? And, you know, it, it, they're totally um, misleading people on the 5,000 encounters part of the bill. Oh, yeah. They make it seem like you're letting in 5,000 people. And then after that, you're cracking down where, you know, my reading of it is that after 5,000 encounters, there's literally no due process anymore at all. People can't even request asylum. So a totally different scenario. They're still, um, you know, they're still uh, holding like single men in custody the of the first 5,000. There's all these things. With it. But my question is, uh, like when you see the Josh Hawleys and all these other people, especially in the House, like the hard MAGA caucus in the House, do, are they, do they not understand the bill or are they just like lying about the bill relentlessly? It's really hard to say to try to wrap your head around that mindset because it just doesn't make sense. Um, there's a couple different things you mentioned that we can pick apart here. One is calling this an open border bill, which a lot of people have. I, I, the words don't mean anything. I mean, if, <laughs> if open borders has any meaning, it wouldn't possibly apply to this bill. I mean, raising the, the asylum standard for the, the threshold to meet asylum, giving lots more money to CBP and ICE 
to increase detention, increase deterrence, um, basically like giving them money to conduct raids again, um, increase detention capacity to put more people in uh, immigration detention centers. And then this this 5,000 numbers as well, um, it was like Brandon Judd, one of the, the union, Border Patrol Union presidents went on Fox News a couple of days ago to explain this part of the bill to the Republican legislators who were totally misunderstanding it, maybe not even reading it, maybe just seeing the number 5,000 and I don't know, just screaming or something, that it would be 5,000 detentions, 5,000 encounters, apprehensions of the Border Patrol that made by the Border Patrol, and then the border would be shut down. So those are apprehensions, not people just being let in across the border. Um, there's a another piece of this that I think a lot of people forget, and the the the, the short term memory problem of border and immigration politics is is is, is a very serious issue that. Is a lot of folks, especially on the right, are really incensed that people are being let into the country um, because there is a limit to how many people can be detained. Um, we don't have the money for it. We don't have the bed capacity for it. I I, I hope and, and think that we also don't have the moral capacity for it to detain everyone who comes across seeking asylum. Um, it's not a crime. That also should be very clear. But during the Trump administration, about I think it's actually a little bit more than half of the people who were apprehended at the border by Border Patrol were also let into the country. They were not detained except for a few hours or maybe a day or two during the processing, and then they were released. That was happening under the Trump administration. That is happening now. They're enraged about it, but just look a couple of years ago and you see that this is how it's been happening for a long time. I think just... One of the big things I was trying to do with this book is just like bring some sanity back to the conversation. And like we we have if we have any hope of treating people decent, of whatever, securing the border, which I think is a problematic framing, we need to at least be able to talk about it in real terms and understand actually what's happening, actually what our laws are. It is complex, but it's none of it is helping when people just are reading a thing and understanding it completely opposite of what it, it, the real meaning is. And, and that's what's happening. And that's what was showed with this this whole debate in the past few weeks with this bill. So, John, the Republican and the Trump framing of immigration has basically been like the border is in chaos. Migration is bad. Immigrants are bad. Um, and the way to deal with this is through a combination of overwhelming militarization of the board of the border and basically cruelty. That cruelty will serve as a deterrent. And, you know, you pointed out that even after like the child separation policy, migration continued to increase, um, which points in the opposite direction of uh, cruelty really serving as an effective deterrent. Um, what they would say is, oh, well, they didn't do it long enough or they didn't keep doing it. You know, they didn't really try the child separation. They didn't really try the maximum cruelty direction. But, you know, what would your response to that framing of the border be because, you know, that's part of what's such an issue with what Democrats just did and why I can't understand how they're taking a victory lap here is they just accepted that framing of migrants are bad, immigration is bad, the border's in chaos, the border's in crisis, and we have to deal with this only through militarization and cruelty. They just accepted that all lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah. Um, my refrain, I think, through this conversation is going to be there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and, and it is really complicated. But 
let's think about, let's start with the idea of deterrence and it whether or not it works. Um, there's so many different ways to look at it. You mentioned the family separation crisis. And really, I mean, this was the most cruel policy we've seen on our border in a long time. And within months of the beginning of this policy, which I documented at length in my first book, I spent a lot of time in Central America speaking with people who had had their children taken from them, mm. who had no idea where their children were for months at a time. Um, young, tender-aged children, five, six years old. And their situation was so dire, their motivation for, for moving was so serious that they did it again. Like, and, and, and overall numbers wow. as well, besides the individuals that I spoke with, overall numbers of families crossing the border, seeking asylum in the months immediately after the family separation crisis went up. So that's one example of deterrence not going up. And there's so many others to look at just in really big picture um, from about 1980 to uh, the last few years, um, the 2020s, early 2020s. This is really the period in which we saw all of these modern border militarization, immigration enforcement measures take effect. And the number of uh, foreign-born immigrants from Latin America has, I think, like sextupled during that period. Mm -hmm. So Republicans and Democrats can speak, you know, out of one side of their mouth saying, as you were just mentioning, migration is bad. We need to further fortify the border. We need to push people back. We need to impose all these cruel policies. But they also understand, they really do, or they should understand um, that the country needs migrants, um, that we need migrants now, we've needed them for a long time. And every year there's, you know, the, the pandemic was a little bit of a blip, but about a million people come to this country and resettle here permanently. And without those people coming here, um, the economy would be really struggling. Um, there'd be entire sectors of the labor force that would be, um, you know, missing a lot of workers. Um, there was a recent report that the construction industry is short over a half a million workers right now. Where where are we going to get those people? I mean, increasing like some of the proposed policies were increasing trade schools again, so more folks are interested and want to go into construction. That's a fine idea. I think that's that's, a, that's that would be good, but also. There is a very eager workforce who is showing up at our border right now, who are in various cities in our country right now, who are deemed illegal or not given papers, who are officially not allowed to work. And we know that these people are going to go into some of these people are going to go into that industry, and yet they're going to be exploited. They're not going to have the same worker protections, and yet they're going to be building our houses and our and the things that we need. And they're going to be you know serving us in all sorts of ways and and each other and just you know making the the, the country and our communities more robust and and just stable. Politicians who are serious in in any way understand that 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 is the case, and they understand that we need these workers. And so you can kind of try to use this political uh, framing of being anti-immigrant, and it actually. Seemingly, I mean, have Trump to to show here it works. It, it does get people scared. It does bring people to the polls. But anyone who really understands the issue knows that also we can't actually keep migrants out because it would be very bad for the country. So I I'll, I'm going to come back to the uh, work question in a little bit here. But let me ask you this: Democrats, 
the way they structure this bill, it, you know, my reading of it is twofold. It looks like they value the money going to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan like the most. That's their biggest part of this. Um, and that was like the trade off that Republicans are giving in on, at least the Ukraine portion of it. But it also strikes me that on immigration in particular, they do kind of largely agree with Republicans on like on, on the basics around. Maybe there are some differences around the edges, like, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. We'll defend the dreamers more than the Republicans will or, or what have you. But it looks like they gave them everything they wanted because they largely do agree with the Republicans on the immigration question. And um, I mean, I remember videos of Joe Biden going back to the 1990s where he's saying, like, we need some sort of a barrier or fence along the southern border. And it's like, that's Trumpism before Trump was even on the scene. So is your reading the same as mine, that the reason they structured this the way they did is, number one, because they value first and foremost that money going to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. But number two, that they do kind of, let's say, 85 percent, 90 percent agree with Republicans on uh, issues around the border? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it was a weird move to try to pair this with, you know, foreign aid or military, foreign military funding. Um, you know, they, they thought that that there would be enough leverage and, and desire to pass that, that these border policies would have to like be able to ride in the sails and 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 be pushed through, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, you know, the the example that you mentioned, it, I think that's telling too, because actually that wasn't in the bill. There were no further protections for dreamers in the bill. And you would yeah. think yeah, that's right. that that was, that would be something that Democrats would be like, well, we need to do that at least, but no, they didn't. Um, so I think your reading is actually very accurate that, yeah, there are some differences along the edges. And I, I, I did mention at the beginning that there were some, some good things decent things in this bill. But overall, it would have been um, basically a Republican wish list from the Trump administration. And, and I mean, that's what it, that's what it effectively yeah. was. I mean, maybe he would want to take it even further and, you know, put his moats with alligators or whatnot. But effectively, it was <laughs> giving uh, this and then future administrations whoever that may be next January, um, a lot of power to shut down the border and to, you know, I mean, to, to try to shut down the border, but to really deny asylum seekers, really to detain more families, to detain more single people who are just here to seek asylum, which we should just, you know, this should be like attacked on the end of every, every mention of the word asylum is, it is a legal thing to do. It is protected in US and international law. It is not illegal to ask for asylum, no matter how you get into the country and ask for it. You can cross by swimming across the Rio Grande, you can cross through the desert, jump over the fence, uh, or overstay a visa and ask for asylum. And that is your legal right as guaranteed in US law and international. Just um, I, I saw Iglesias making, attempting to make like the liberal case for the bill for the bill um in spite of the fact i mean he wrote a book about like we should have a billion americans which was very pro-immigration but he yeah. was trying to make the liberal case for the bill which was basically like listen the asylum process is hopelessly broken which i think there's some truth to, i mean you've got a multi-million case backlog you clearly have a lack of capacity to be able to adjudicate these cases in any sort of a timely manner he's like this gives you a chance to reform the asylum process um, as opposed to Stephen Miller and the Trump administration make it clear they want to get rid of asylum altogether. They want it to be gone. End of story. So that was I'm, I'm not accepting his case. I think his case is preposterous. Yeah, because they ended asylum after 5000. 
encounters a day. Right. Yeah. But yeah. he's saying under Trump, they would just get rid of asylum altogether. Instead of having the 5,000 and then in India? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to ask you, though, about um, part of what people have pointed to of why there's such a difference now in the immigration rhetoric, like from a Joe Biden versus on the 2020 trail is all these busings of migrants into liberal cities like New York and Chicago. And New York has, you know, famously a right to shelter law. And um, Eric Adams has been saying that they have been struggling to keep up with the number of migrants who have come to New York, which is, I think you probably know the number. I think it's like 160,000 people who have come (laughs) to New York. So um, is there a point there in terms of the practical difficulties of just taking in this many people at once who have immediate needs and, you know, don't have immediate ties and really need help, like getting off the ground? Are there just like practical and financial considerations about that number of people coming to one place at one time? Considerations, sure. Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it possible to uh, resettle 160,000 people in New York City? Absolutely. Um, I want to talk some numbers here, Um, but I also want to just put a pin in in the other thing that you mentioned about the need to potentially reform asylum. And we can come back to that and what, you know, Iglesias's proposal or acceptance of of the current bill, because I think that's actually really important to talk about. So, you know, there's a couple of ways to think about it. you know, 160,000 people over two plus year period, it's a lot, um, but it pales in comparison to a number of other periods of high migration, even just considering New York City. So in the early 20th century, in the mid 19th century, the per- just percentage wise, the number of people who were landing in New York City compared to the population was almost an order of magnitude greater. And what happened after those migrants came into the city? Well, New York City became the thriving, diverse metropolis that it is today. You know, it's too expensive and can be annoying in plenty of ways, but it's a wonderful city. It's, it's the most diverse city in, in the world, probably. And, um, you know, to think that 160,000 people, um, Venezuelans, are going to put New York City in existential crisis is is laughable. And I think it, it shows some uh, incredible historical ignorance on the part of Mayor Adams. How to resettle those people? That's something that I think we could have a serious conversation about. But scapegoating them and saying that they're a threat to New Yorkers results in the thing that we talked about before we started with um, Fox News correspondents or whatever they are attacking people who they think are migrants in the street on live television. Right. This is what that leads to. So, um, you know, what what we could do, I think there's there's really two approaches here is, well, there's a, there's a handful of things. One is give them work, work permits earlier. We were talking about like the, the, the need we have to fill empty jobs. It's a laborious and complicated task to get a work permit as an asylum seeker. I've helped people mm. try that out numerous times. There's at least 150 day waiting period after initially filing your asylum application. The asylum application is a very complicated thing and you have to be careful with it because if you have a true threat to your life and you make a mistake and there you can be disqualified for even minor mistakes, you're going to get sent back to your peril or possibly to your death. So it's not something you want to scribble off really quick and just submit so you can get your work permit maybe in 150 days. But that 150 days is the shortest time. 
often it extends to a year or two years before you can actually legally be allowed to work. That needs to change. Um, yeah. and, and that's something that, to Adam's credit, I think he's actually mentioned, Kathy Hochul as well, um, New York governor has mentioned, and as have other people. But also, I think the the I this this method of busing people to these like so-called liberal cities. I mean, it, it's it's really it's really a sad move. You're literally using people as political pawns. I think it's 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 disgusting. But if we had more open immigration laws, if they were accepted in Texas as well and weren't scared for their lives because of the militarization of you know Eagle Pass and other parts of Texas if they could go freely to where they wanted to go or to where jobs were available there wouldn't be 160,000 people in New York City they would spread right. out and, and they're not probably that many people aren't going to stay in New York City either but then you think about the long term anyway and like going back to this these like numerical comparisons of earlier periods of migration what what, what are really are the effects going to be in a couple of years I think there's going to be a couple more Venezuelan restaurants in Queens. I think that probably like Mayor Adams is going to enjoy that food and like forget about this because he's just making political hay out of trying to act tough on migration or, or whatever his actual motivations are. But they're just not. It, it, it's actually not a problem. Um, and and you know there are studies as well that show uh, significantly more migrants coming to individual cities or small regions do absorb into the economy, do absorb into the workforce, um, do assimilate. And it's really just hasn't been a problem. I want to bolster your point. Um, Jeff Stein, the Washington Post economics reporter, just tweeted this out yesterday. Due largely to an unexpected surge in immigration, the U.S. economy will be about $7 trillion larger and federal revenues about $1 trillion bigger, according to the nonpartisan uh, Congressional Budget Office. Now, that's over 10 years, to be clear. It's not over a one-year period. But, you know, something that I noted in terms of um, conservative commentary around immigration versus other issues. First of all, there tends to be this like conservative fixation on like, oh my God, the low birth rate and our people aren't having enough babies. There's not going to be enough people. So there's that. And then, but when it's immigrants, then, you know, no, those aren't the right people. We don't want those people. The other thing though, specifically with regards to New York City, is there's been all of this um, conservative glee over people leaving New York and going to Texas. And this is seen as like a boon to Texas, right? Oh, look at Texas and Florida. They're winning because all these people are coming. But the minute that it's migrants that are coming versus just people who have to be doing internal migration instead, then it's a te it's terrible. It's a crisis. It's a tragedy. This is horrible for them. So it can't both be that people leaving is bad, but also people coming well, is also bad. Gee, I wonder what the difference is. <laughs> I wonder what the difference is between the people coming in one scenario and coming in the other scenario. I can't quite figure it out. What's the difference? I don't know. I'm puzzling What's over the that difference, one. John? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that's, that's that's a big mystery. I mean, you know, I think what it gets down to, and when you really think about that dynamic, <laughs> is that welcome people tour crossing state lines, like, you know, from New York, a number of states to Texas or wherever, versus denying and making this, this uproar about people who are crossing an international line. So what we have here is, I think, an example of what could be called global apartheid. We have different rules for different people. And just just on a, on a really basic level, 
how is that fair? Like, why do some people have the right to move when other people don't? And, and, and why have we, you know, pushed back against all these other limitations on fundamental freedoms um, because of, you know, we, you shouldn't limit someone's freedom because of what race they are or what gender they are, but where they were born and what nationality they are, that somehow is okay. And that to, you know, consign them to um, potentially death or um, miserable working conditions, to be able to shackle them, detain them, torture them, you know, excommunicate them, that is somehow okay, just because they were born somewhere else. It, I, I think that there's a, this, this seems like a simplistic argument, but it's something that I think actually is a little bit appealing from a ethical or philosophical standpoint. It's like, how is that okay? How is that defensible? And I, I think it's really not. I mean, there, there are defenses to it, and, and we can get into some of that as well. But I think that they really fall apart after just a couple little attempts or sentences there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point. I welcome some, deny, and you know, castigate others. So I'm going to get to, in a little bit, I'll lay out for you what my vision would be if I was emperor for a day, like the reforms I would put into place at the border, and I'd be very interested in your response to them, because I do think mine would probably be maybe a little bit more of a centristy approach than what yours is, but then again, you wrote a very powerful book and made some great arguments that I never thought of, so I'd be very interested in getting your response to what my ideas are. But before that, there's a couple things I wanted to bring up. So first, I wanted to underline your point that... Um, so there's this big scandal in New York City now about how uh, Adams gave out uh, $53 million in prepaid credit cards to some of these migrants. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are uh, outraged by that. But you just pointed out, uh, well, one of the things you could do instead of something like that is just hand out the work permits, right? And then they could go work and then everybody's much happier. So it's kind of weird that they're stuck in this limbo situation where it's like, you know, they can't necessarily, they're already in New York City. They can't necessarily be kicked out before having some sort of a hearing. And if they're not going to get that hearing for a while, it's like, okay, why not let them work in the meantime? Everybody in theory should be happier about that than handing out 53 million prepaid credit cards. That's one point I want to make. And the other one I want your comment on is, Crystal and I were talking about this the other day. It just occurred to me. I had a light bulb moment that, hold on, when it comes to Venezuelans, mm -hmm. uh, and even more so when it comes to Cuban migrants, the way the policy works in the U.S. is like, what do they say? Wet foot, dry foot? Like you yeah, take one step on and you're good, right? And there's this whole uh, uproar about how, oh, Democrats just want to bring in immigrants so that they can get their votes. That's the whole point, even mm -hmm. though it, in many instances they, they can't vote, right? But when it comes to what it nominally would be more right-leaning immigrants from like communist countries, that actually is the policy that when you get here, you can vote right away. So talk about the uh, the the discrepancy between how we treat immigrants from certain places versus how we treat them from other places, from more like allied countries where we assume, oh, they should just stay there and deal with it. Well, yeah. So in the case of some of the Venezuelans or Cubans or Nicaraguans who were Ukrainians or Afghans, I um, mm -hmm. think I'm missing any there, um, who have been able to come into the country um, through a parole system in the past couple of years, the overwhelming majority of people who are coming now um, will not be able to vote anytime soon or maybe at all. Um, th I think that's a really important point, too, is I have seen a lot of people say that Elon Musk, right, even is like this is his his strategy. This is Biden's strategy to get people in so that they'll start voting Democrat as if Biden is thinking 10 years down the road. 
<laughs> I don't know. That's pretty <laughs> dubious in my book. Um, but the reason that they're not going to be able to vote or anytime soon or at all is because of a Biden policy that replaced Title 42 and um, is, you know, we're commonly referred to as the asylum ban. So people who cross not at a port of entry, and that is percentage wise, most of the people who are crossing now, um, will never be eligible for asylum, except for a very few number of exceptions. And so you're, you're, um, you'll be, they would be eligible for a, a lower level of protection, which through which you can never adjust to become a citizen. So they will never be able to vote in a presidential election. Um, Even Cubans and Venezuelans? No. Um, so the people who, well, oh. it depends because some some Cubans and Venezuelans are coming in um, across the border and not being paroled in. But the ones who are being paroled in, um, they likely will be able to, it, potentially at least, um, okay. uh, finally adjust and become citizens. But the people who are not paroled in, and those are the majority overall numbers, um, won't be able to. Um, so, yeah, you, you're exactly right that the way that asylum has long worked has been a very political thing. So um, first, when uh, international asylum laws were passed, they were very narrowly tailored to people who were just um, uprooted because of World War II. Um, it only applied to people in Europe. It only applied to people who had been uprooted before 1951. That eventually got expanded to include the rest of the world. But traditionally, and especially in the United States, if you just look at the asylum grant rates, People who are have fled um, left-leaning or, you know, communist-leaning countries are the ones who have been granted asylum. So, people from Cuba—that is why those policies were have long been in effect—were um, much had a much easier time. Then you look at like people from other countries, like Mexico, our neighbor. The asylum grant rate, I think, last year was about seven percent of people. Um, we're wow. actually able to get asylum. So it's always been political. And it, that isn't even just necessarily like a top-down like policy directive, but that's just the way that judges, like individual immigration judges, there are hundreds of them throughout the country, have been just adjudicating these asylum claims. They haven't been granting asylum in to, to the majority of people who are fleeing um, friendly, so-called friendly countries. Um, so you see that even in like... Um, like the case of El Salvador, um, the U.S. supported El Salvador for uh, for a long time, and you know even during the war. And the asylum grant rates from El Salvador were really low um, because we thought that 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 we were supposedly helping these people, and, and if they were being helped, they shouldn't be able um, have any reason to actually flee from mm. their country. Um, so it's always it's always a political game. Um, I, I think that that big picture voting projection is just just fantasy, honestly. Um, it, it just it, I, I don't think that's actually in anyone's minds. Well, this is also a place where other Republican rhetoric runs counter to it because they also love to crow about how great they're doing with Latinos now and uh, Latino men in particular. And some polls are now voting more Republican than Democrats. So it's like, you know, also the idea that this would be just a monolith in favor of Democrats has already been disproven and is not real, even according to, you know, their own bragging about this population. Um, so let's talk about layout for us, because it's not just your, your book is, you know, an affirmative case. 
in favor of a totally different vision of immigration, where immigration is seen as good, where their, you know, borders become very porous, more like the way it would be to travel here from Virginia into D.C. or Maryland or whatever, where it's, you know, totally easy and frictionless, et cetera. What would your actual vision for, quote unquote, open border be? What does that mean to you when you say it? Well, I want to talk about the approach first okay. for, just a, for just a moment. Sure. Um, and, and this is why I think it's important to, to really start understanding like what open borders means, uh, what the reality of borders right now is across the world. So we have, according to a UN count from 2023, there's about 270 million people who are considered international migrants. That number's around 3.5% of the entire global population. That number, percentage-wise, has held steady for about 100 years. Um, people move. People have always moved. You go back millennia, and people have always moved. I think that's an anthropological feature of, our, of, of humans. Mm -hmm. So we've also seen differing approaches to immigration controls, about 100 years ago was the first time that passports were really introduced. We saw the rise of bordering beginning with a little bit after World War One and then World War Two. really in the last 30 years. I think like people are going to move no matter what. I think the only real question is how we respond. It's not how we stop people from moving because I, you know, we, 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 we've gone over some of these numbers already in this conversation, but it just deterrence hasn't worked. And so how do we respond? And I think one of the main reasons why I think we should think through it differently, and I think we should come to terms with the fact that people move and we're not going to be able to stop them. How to respond, how to welcome them, how to organize it, I think, is actually the only real question we need to be asking right now. And so there's a number of different ways. You know, I'm, I'm trained as a reporter and a journalist, and so differing from a policy uh, like future oriented um, ideas person is it, it, this was a little bit of a stretch, but I think there's just obviously different ways to do it. So you can keep crying foul, you can keep throwing money and pretending that this is going to stop something that is inevitably not going to stop. Or you can think like, well, maybe we can do things differently. And we have so many different models to, to look at. So we have our history to look at. There have not been severe as severe immigration controls in the United States or in any other country. If you look back 60, 70, 80 years, there's some exceptions to that. But really, we've seen a huge ramp up of immigration and border um, border measures over the last three quarters of a century. Mm -hmm. Then some of the examples we have. So, so you can look into history and say, like, oh, we didn't have as severe borders. Maybe we could go back to that. Or you could look at Within the United States, we have a collection of incredibly diverse, um, economically, culturally, linguistically, you know, gastronomically diverse, different cultures, really, all contained in this giant mass of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And they cross jurisdictional lines all the time. We've, you know, mentioned some people going from New York to, to Florida or, or, or Texas. And it's pretty seamless. They have to re-register. They have to get a new driver's license. They have to, you know, register to vote again in a new place. And it just kind of works out. Same with the EU. I mean, this is, I think, an actually a shining example, except for one huge problem is that one of the major fears of extending um, 
EU status to especially some of the Eastern European states. My family's from Romania, so I was called this very closely and it affected a lot of my family members that are still there. Was that, oh my God, all the Romanians are going to flood into France or Spain or whatever. Plenty of Romanians did go, but it wasn't, um, uh, it, it overwhelmed no parts of a Spanish or French society or any other countries they went to. Um, and relatively, immigration trends sort of were the same from Eastern Europe to Western Europe, um, even after that extension to Romania and Bulgaria. What happened, however, was as uh, those immigration controls were opened within the EU, they were um, tightened and further restricted around the EU. And at the same time that immigration did not increase from very much from Eastern to Western Europe, it hugely increased from um, Africa to Europe and from the Middle East to Europe, along with immigration controls. So, and that was like the tightening of, of you know, the, the EU border with Frontex and with pushing dinghies back and trying to institute all these other, like, you know, anti-asylum measures. So here we have just this example of this relatively free movement that works, and yet the blockade around that block of, of, of countries that does the opposite of working, where there, there now is an immigration crisis. I, I don't think that's a wrong term when, you know, there are, like last year, there was a couple of cases of hundreds of people drowning, trying to reach European shores because they were not rescued because they, you know, were forced into these like practically, um, you know, already capsizing dinghies. And so like, just like, we, we see what doesn't work and we see what kind of does. And I, I think extending the EU, adding on Turkey, like that, that like there was a period not that long ago where Turkey was um, being considered as a potential EU member. Of course, that's off the table now because of immigration politics. But I think in fact, the solution to the immigration politics between Turkey and Germany or Turkey and the EU more generally would be including it. Um, and then there's a number of other like sort of passport free zones throughout the world, which people forget about. There's um, four Central American countries that have it. There's a number of South American countries. There's a number of collection of African countries, Nordic countries and, and um, Australia and New Zealand that have these policies of free movement and it works. Um, and it, 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 it hasn't created um, mass movements. And there's, you know, I think the biggest thing that people worry about when I talk about this or when, when anyone mentions open borders is this like, you know, always their hydrological metaphors, this flood of people, this like wave of migrants coming. And also we have evidence that that wouldn't be the case. Um, people typically don't go far when they move. Um, Right now, and this would be shocking to a lot of the people on the right in Europe, 90% of all African refugees in the world are in Africa. They've left their countries to another country in Africa. So when people are forced to move because of war, persecution, or poverty, or you know any of these things that compel people to leave their homes, they typically don't want to go far. And there's tons of evidence showing that. Um, so I, I think that like the, the concern is um, far greater than the reality that we have evidence for and we have seen. And that, again, going back to that inevitability of human mobility is we know that deterrence doesn't work. 
And if you if you think otherwise, you're just not looking at the evidence. You're not looking at even incredibly recent history. So just trying something different seems like a reasonable approach here. Trying to be more decent to people who are forced to move also seems like a pretty reasonable approach to me. So let me ask you this, and I'll give you my like policies in just a little bit, but I want to get your reaction to this first. So you say it's about like 3.5% that seem to, you know, move, I guess, on, on a yearly basis, and it's kind of held at that level historically. How would you respond to this criticism that now with uh, climate change spiraling out of control, um, you know, with more war that we're seeing now than uh, we've seen previously, potential famine in some places, water shortages in other places, extreme poverty, et cetera, that, you know, even if you have just a tiny upswing from the 3.5% that normally uh, migrates, if you kick it up like one percentage point more, uh, that, you. that, you know, tens of millions of people is, is what we're talking about then. And isn't there just a practical issue with just the... Um, stability of any given system at at any one time with such a quick influx how do you respond to that criticism because i feel like that's a a reasonable concern sure it, it, yeah it, it certainly is um yeah you know 3.5% of the global population today is vastly larger than 3.5% 100 years ago and yeah that's, that, that's a very good point um i think that um you know what what's the opposite approach so people are forced to flee because of climate change, because of incredibly severe storms, because a hurricane devastates a country, or, or drought makes uh, agriculture in a you know a few states in Africa unsustainable. What what is the opposite approach than thinking about how these people can resettle? Is to immobilize them? Is to draw? A circle around them and say you can't leave and if you do you'll be shot killed you know imprisoned pushed back into um famine i mean it, i i think that we need to think about what the consequences are of border controls of of, of the purported idea behind border controls you can like l try to lock people into a you know small area into some you know, slum or into some, you know, small country, what will the result of that be? I think what there's, there's a couple of things to think about here. One is that it's not going to work, um, that we're going to be, you know, priming a political powder keg that is going to be ripe for, um, you know, incredible oppression within that zone and is inevitably going to break that, you know, perimeter anyway. And then people are going to be fleeing in even in more more emergent situations than they were fleeing now. So I think we just really need to think about a smart approach to resettling people. Um, you know, I think the numbers of folks displaced because of war right now, it, it, like, there's I, I've seen you know arguments on both sides. It's actually not as much as it was in the mid 20th century. That it's actually numerically just more, maybe percentage wise, there's something similar. But climate change is a real issue, and I think that we just you know, we are obviously responsible for it, the, the global north, you know, mostly responsible for it. I think that if we are going to um, own up to that, I think the most moral approach would be to understand who that is affecting. Um, there is a, a, a good stat um, that came out last year that there was a, a recent five year period where the United States spent 11 times more on border enforcement than it did 
on towards climate change mitigation. So trying to just wall off ourselves from this storm of people or whatever um, isn't going to work. I think that thinking through approaches to adaptation through um, helping people resettle where they want to resettle um, is actually going to be beneficial in the long run. Rather than trying to contain them, they won't be contained and there'll just be more misery. And I think some of that misery is going to end up on our doorstep anyway. So let me channel my uh, right-wing co-host over on Breaking Points. What he would say in part is, listen, the world is an unfair place. We're never going to solve all the problems of the world. Our responsibility here as the United States of America is first and foremost to our citizens. So we can't be letting in everybody who's, you know, poor, struggling, suffering, whatever, who wants to come here because we have plenty of problems of our own. People who are jobless, who don't have health care. Don't we owe it to them to take care of them first and prioritize them over, you know, all the peoples of the world who, yes, we can feel terrible about, but ultimately our first and foremost priority has to be to the citizens, our existing citizens of our own country. I think it's not a zero-sum game. I think that's um, an inaccurate way of looking at it. Um, I think that actually a lot of the people who are here would benefit from migrants. A lot of people who are struggling here would benefit of migrants. I think it's just we must think about okay so there's all there's all these social um uh, uh, uh sorry all, all these like um and analysts who study this idea of well we have to protect our own community first or you know the reason that we want to maintain immigration controls we want to maintain this um this uh character of our community we want some sort mm-hmm. of cotton how was this community formed like how do people get citizenship in the united states just Look historically at that. First of all, it was only white men. That was the written into the Constitution that was only applied to white men. And then it was, well, um, you know, there was a long fight about who else actually deserved being an official member of this community. Um, and that was established through slaughter, through genocide, through um robbery of lands of the indigenous people of the robbery of mexico um and you can just like look any way that the the territory of the united states stretched or expanded and what you'll find is a history of genocidal bloodshed if you look at the expansion of who should be contained and who should not be contained and considered a a full member of this community you look at a long history of pushing people out, of accepting people only because it was, you know, politically expedient. So what community are we really actually protecting? How is it forged? I think that, again, going back to like a basic level of fairness makes some sense here. It's like, why do we get to be the ones to say that we're in and someone else is out when we became the people who are inside this community through this just extraordinarily violent so you let know, me give you let me give you one more argument that I think this would fall more in like the liberal, maybe the Matt Iglesias might make this kind of an, an argument, which is, listen, we've okay. seen a backlash in Europe. We've seen, you know, the rise of Trump and Brexit and the rise of these far right parties in Europe in response to migration, especially migration from Syria, which caused, you know, problems with social cohesion and, you know, allowed the rise of this reactionary politics. So if you want to have this sort of like, center-left type 
policy and avoid the Trumps and the Bolsonaros and the Brexits and the Marine Le Pens of the world, then you got to keep a lid on the migration because, listen, you may not like it. It may not be fair. It may be racist. It may be xenophobic. But we've been to this play time and time again. And a significant amount of migration from a culture, more, you know, that's significantly different from like the dominant culture in the state leads to these sort of reactionary politics. And so we've got to kind of control it and keep it at a manageable level. Yeah, so I think that this is going back to the first thing that we talked about is that we haven't, the left has not embraced a positive vision of migration. I think that they have have repeatedly caved to the right and haven't yeah. really fought for and defended truly the rights of migrants. Um, and I think that if you try to decry the tactics of Trump or Marine Le Pen. But you say, like, those aren't good, but we still need some sort of immigration controls to keep some people out, keep the numbers relatively down. I think you're making that argument on a very slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Okay, how then do you define who is allowed in and who is not? So some families are just going to, we're going to have to rip apart some families. We're just going to have to throw in detention some people who are seeking asylum. We're just going to have to push back across the border some people who are um, suffering from poverty and famine, you know, I, I, where do you draw the line? And I think that's why I think like one of the one of the main points I want to make with this book is that the 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 rights vision I think is a little bit clearer. I think they've done a better job at defining what their ultimate goal is, and the left is in this muddy in between thing. And I think that even if you don't agree with me, I think we need clarity about what the opposite extreme would be. What it would it look like? What is our ideal? Even if we're not going to get there now or maybe never, um, I think we could. But I think we just need to understand where that is. I think if we can hold some sort of moral ground, of course, politics is an exercise in compromise. We're not going to get exactly what we want. But I think we need to maintain actually and def first define and then maintain a vision of what we think sh this should be like. And I think that if you're going to be playing that argument, it's like, well, we're going to, otherwise, there's going to be the rise of the far right. There is a far right. This is, we're here. So, like, let's not concede to their politics and their demands right now. Um, yeah. So now I'll give you Emperor Kyle's border policy and have you react to it. So right <laughs> off the bat, though, what I'll say is I actually, I, I, I think I totally agree with your general point of, like, we need to start framing immigration as this is a very positive thing and this can be a very positive thing and you brought up the uh jeff stein tweet that said like here are the tremendous economic benefits for example mm -hmm. of having immigrants in this country the history of the united states being you know a country of immigrants like these are all things that you know perhaps we should put an onus on to shift the narrative i agree with that what i would say is this if i was emperor for a day hopefully more than a day mm -hmm. but uh, like trump dictator for, for just one day <laughs> just a day just one day <laughs> just one day and i'll do everything uh i would say people who are here and have been here and are you know productive and by the way my experience with immigrants is that they're overwhelmingly phenomenal people who kind of embrace the traditional american values even yeah. more than americans do right mm -hmm. they're the hardest working like, the nicest, literally the best most people family oriented yeah the best people i know right <laughs> so people who are here and have been here uh legalize them you know, I think that's the right thing to do morally. I also think it's the right thing to do uh, from the sense that you 
you end any potential arguments about, oh, undocumented immigrants are undercutting the wages of, you know, you end all those arguments. You say, okay, well, now we're on an equal playing field because they're legalized. Um, I am okay with having a border. I, I don't support the notion of, of open borders. I think for practical reasons more than anything else of like how we organize society and, and the taxes and social security and, and things of that nature, I would flood the zone at the border with immigration judges so that we can process the cases fast. You know, I want to make sure we have due process and people can submit asylum claims. I want to go through all of those and do it in a reasonable time frame, which right now the backlog is preposterous. So I would absolutely flood the zone with immigration judges so we can work through that fast. Um, I'm okay with not just like political refugees in the sense that you're escaping war. I'm okay with also economic refugees. I know perhaps the literal definition in the law of refugee is very, it's much more narrow than that. I'm okay with broadening that out. Of death, yeah. um, I'm definitely in favor of funding new facilities at the border, which seems absolutely necessary because of the surge that's coming in. I think just from a practical perspective, this is something that you need in order to address it. I even like the idea of having like uh, religious facilities, not necessarily linked to the government, but just having religious facilities as a first step to help people right when they cross the border, because those are the sorts of groups that seem to step up in scenarios like that to help people when they're at, you know, very difficult time in their life. Um, I like the idea of work permits for those who are approved so they can um, they can earn their keep in a way where we don't have the political scandal around, oh, you're sending prepaid, uh, you know, cards to them. And that's infuriating people who are already here and are poor and have their own struggles. So I like the idea of getting those work permits out faster. And then the only exclusionary rule that I would support, this is the only area where you could say I'm, I'm relatively restrictionist, is that I'm OK with having rules and laws around we're just not going to let in any violent criminals. If you have a history of a violent criminal record, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say this is one of the prongs of the thing, things that you need to abide by in order uh, to get into this country. So that would be my breakdown. I, I, I would call it a relatively moderate or maybe center left type policy. What sort of issues do you see with that and what would you change? I, I think that's a, that's a pretty, pretty decent vision there, Kyle. Um, you know, and I, I agree with you with, um, you know, my book is the case for open borders. It's not a case for no borders. I, I think that's a really interesting conversation to have, and you can get deep into the philosophy of that. But I agree that I think we need some sort of organization around our community. Um, I think that, you know, one of the scholars um, who I really admire and has written a very interesting book called um, States Without Nations. So if you sort of carve out the nationalist part of the institution of the state, which um, is the, typically the most violent, the most exclusionary, the, the, the nationalist part is the most violent, the most exclusionary, that what you have is a country um, that is functioning as, as it is now without these um, like, you know, like alarmist, um, sort of often like warmongering and xenophobic um, aspects of it. Um, I know we're coming up on the hour, but can I mention a couple quick stories of, of, of some migrants that um, that I, I met? And I think that really, to me, sort of underscore who is coming to the country and how we're uh, welcoming them and, and what the effects will be. So one, um, very briefly, I was out reporting um, along the border in a pretty remote area um, near the Tom Nation, an indigenous tribe here in Arizona. 
And it was extremely remote. I wasn't legally allowed to be on a car in this this border road, but I needed to do some reporting there. So I, I took a mountain bike so I could pedal and get to where I needed to go and thought that that might be my excuse and they might let me go. And no one bothered me. And I was there was no one out there. Um, and I saw a man by himself, which is very rare because almost everyone now travels in groups. You have to navigate the smuggling networks because of border measures um, in, in, in Mexico. And he was completely by himself. He didn't speak any, barely any English. He didn't speak very much Spanish. He picked up a little bit though through his travels through Mexico. He was um, a sick Indian man and he had traveled by himself the entire way and somehow avoided the smuggling networks in the United States, which is just like incredible. Um, and I was there, it's like he needed help. He was like very, very far from any sort of civilization or any sort of outpost. And um, I was like, I'm on a bike. I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't know what to do. I didn't have cell service. I wasn't working. And a border construction truck drove up there. They were like doing some re remediation on patches of the border wall. And I flagged it down and I was like, this guy needs help. I sort of exaggerated a little bit the situation. I was like, he, he, he's in medical distress, he needs help. He wasn't quite, but you know, he definitely is going to need water soon. Um, you need to take him down to just the street, which is like eight miles away or something. And the guy's like, no, I'm not allowed to do this against policy. You can't do it. I can't do it. And I was like, come on, this guy, there's a person here. Like, you have to take him. He's like, I can't. And he just stopped mm -hmm. talking to me. He wouldn't respond to me. So I was like, you're going to leave this person. I'm on a, I can't do it. What, am, what are you going to do? And he just stopped. And I was like, okay. And like, after a while, I, I tried, I pleaded with him, wouldn't give in. So I was like, oh, shit, what do I do? I, I jump off the truck and I go back to see this guy and he wasn't there. And the truck just immediately pulled away because I was like kind of hanging on the, the side of the, the, the door. Mm -hmm. And the truck just immediately zoomed off. And I look and I saw that this man was clinging onto the back of the truck like he was like Spider-Man or something. And I was like, oh my God, this guy, like he's like probably already like opened a business in like New Jersey somewhere. Like he is like yeah. so, he is so capable. Like, why would we not let this person into the country? Like, like you know, this man, and we know very well about like the little persecution of, of um, Sikhs in India right now as well. Um, counter that with, um, and this is a, a, a briefer story to end on, but a, a woman I, I spent a, a long time talking to at a migrant shelter in Northern Mexico. She was from Guatemala. She had an eight-year-old boy. Um, they, she was not going to, she wasn't in the greatest health. She was not going to cross through the desert. She was not going to jump a border wall. They were not letting them present at the port of entry. This is during title 42. There's no way she's going to get up. She's going to wait months and months and months. And what she was thinking of doing was sending the boy alone mm. because they do let on the company miners. Mm. I lost touch with her. I ultimately don't know what happened, but then what happens to that kid? Like because of our policies, like this kid without a mom, who's already been through the incredible trauma and they talked to me about some of the things that they saw and, and experienced in Mexico on his own, in a shelter. Like, why are we not letting this mother in with him? Like, who is going to support this kid? What's going to happen to him in high school? What kind of job is he going to have? Maybe he's going to get through. I hope so. But man, it's putting a lot of hurdles in his way. And that's what sort of like, just like two aspects of like, this is these are the real effects of what these border policies are actually enacting. And I think people, we can talk about them abstractly and we do and politically, and this is important, but we forget who we're talking about and, and actually how they affect those people. And yeah, so I, I can end those, those little stories there.
I think that's an important place to end because, you know, as much as we can have a sort of uh, disconnected policy debate, it's always important to keep in mind and put at the center the actual human beings who are at the center of this and whose lives are irrevocably changed by the decisions that are made here in this town where we're sitting. Um, John, tell people where to find the book and where to follow you. Yeah, thanks. So um, Haymarket, it came out two days ago. You can get it at Haymarket, your bookstore, Amazon, wherever you feel like it. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, you find me. Uh, I'm a staff reporter at Arizona Luminaria and on Twitter, JB Washing and, you know, elsewhere. You, you can get me if you, if you need. Be glad to hear from folks, too. Highly recommended book. Very, very thought provoking. You know, I was going to say go into it with an open mind. Even if you don't go into it with an open mind, there'll be some things in there that make you think. Yeah. So thank you, John. We appreciate and, the time. And just to say, lastly, I think especially in this week when Democrats have completely caved to the Republican version and narrative about immigration, I think it couldn't have come at a more critical time to understand that, you know, they have things completely backwards, that we have to not just cave to the Republican vision, but offer our own positive vision and that that is the way to defeat these reactionary forces versus just like giving into them. Yes, sir. You're right. Migrants are terrible. This is a crisis, et cetera. Yeah. Th thanks to you both. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank you, John. Bye. All right, guys, that was John Washington. I, I keep wanting to call him George Washington. Well, my brain's like, say George, fair. say George. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, look, really, really interesting stuff. You and I are listening to the book right now. Mm -hmm. uh, very thought provoking. It was interesting that when I laid out my Emperor Kyle's border policy, he was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Because I was actually expecting quite a bit of pushback because that's not open. I'm not talking about open borders. My position is not open borders by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So if we're going to be like, I guess it's just relative to what we have now. That sounds like heaven. I mean, you know? this is one of the things about how obviously people mean very different things when they say open borders, you know? Um, yeah, but I mean, it's just, I feel like it's a political loser. I, I like the fact that he titled his book The Case yeah, for Open Borders. it's meant to be provocative. It's meant to be provocative. Yeah, But I, I do feel that. like it's one of those things like defund the police that you're never going to convince the majority of people on that. But then again, that might not be his... His goal is probably not There's to convince everybody, role. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, his, he's putting the challenges for, you know, people like us and people on the left to rethink the whole way and the whole frame that has been brought to the immigration debate. And I think there's a lot of value in that. There's another book that I'm reading right now that I just want to give a shout out to. Let me make sure that I'm getting the name right on it. It's another one that just came out from a New Yorker writer who's done years and years. I think he'd position himself as like more moderate. He's left, less of like a leftist activist perspective than John is, but it's also a really excellent book called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. And it tracks the immigration, our immigration laws over decades, effectively starting with Ronald Reagan up through the present. And the way that who's coming has shifted, the way the political response and also, you know, interwoven with stories of actual immigrants and their lives and the way that they've interacted with the system. And um, it's I that book also I really, really recommend has been excellent in terms of, you know, thinking about this issue. One of the things I wish I brought up, but I totally forgot in the mm -hmm. midst of the conversation is uh, Bernie's famous line in either 2015 or 2016 when he was talking about the border, I believe it was to Ezra Klein of Vox. Yeah. And he was like, open borders. No, that's a Koch brothers position. And his point was like, this is a libertarian capitalist position to try to bring in as many people as possible to undercut wages as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I would have been interested to hear his response. My guess is his point would be, well, if these people are all legalized, 
then they can't undercut the wages because right. they're subject to the same laws as everybody else. So yeah, well, the Cokes would want uh, open borders plus no minimum wage plus no unions plus no labor protections. You know, and um, the studies are are pretty overwhelming. I mean, some of the most important studies looked at like the Mariel boat lift, where you had a, a you know a large number of Cuban migrants into Florida all at once. And so, if you're looking at like a shock to an area and what happens, and even in a you know situation that was very unusual, such as that. They still didn't find any impact on, you know, natural born citizens in terms of wages and those sorts of things. This is when Fidel opened up the prisons, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. See, to me, though, that's like that's some sucker shit. Like the one rule I have is no violent criminals. Yeah. That's not unreasonable. But they opened it up because, oh, he's a big, bad communist. So let's save all of the people from communism. That was the idea. We're going to save the day. America's going to save the day from big, bad communism next door. And Fidel was like, bitch, open up the Here prisons. Here's all, Good luck. here's all the criminals. Good but luck you know with what? that. I mean, fella. that just goes to show you. But even that, where he thinks he's sending the worst of the worst, even that ended up benefiting that area. Those and motherfuckers are all the biggest ben- Republicans on the planet. <laughs> Those motherfuckers are deep throwing Trump. Is like, oh, make America great again. That, that's their whole thing, man. Those Florida Cubans do not fuck so you around. Wanna, you want to send those migrants, particular migrants. Get the <laughs> fuck about my country, bro. I said one rule, no violent criminals. That's like, that's like what percentage of the Republican Cubans with the 16 chains in South Florida? Yes. High, yeah. high percentage are Republican down there. That is true. Although actually, you know, it's become it's shifted Obama under the Obama administration, even though they were the ones who, you know, lifted the sanctions on Cuba and whatever. It was actually moving in a different direction where it was like a majority of Cubans were starting to vote Democrat, especially a majority of young Cubans. And now I don't know what's happened yeah. in this country well, in general. I, but Obama was Obama, like Trump, is a sort of unique political force that could sort of change. Yeah. dynamics. You let's know what not I mean? let's not use that as an argument against all immigrants. <laughs> No, no, can't do that. But anyway, anyway, even in that situation, from an economic perspective, it didn't hurt native born workers. It didn't depress wages. There's just a lot of mythology about what the impact is and what the country is able to handle and able to, you know, assimilate and what we would benefit from. I know I said this before. Listen, I've lived in a place that was losing population. It was a sad place to live. I know, but I do feel like that's a little bit of a false dichotomy. Like you want to lose a lot or you want to gain a lot. It's like obviously the balance is the thing that matters the most. Yeah, but I'm just saying like it's a bigger problem if you lose than if you gain. Yeah, I think that's true. It's actually a good problem to have that like the country is doing that people want to come to the country is a good problem to have. That's true. But I would also I don't want anybody to downplay or disregard the practical and organizational impact yeah. of getting too many people at once. Like people are reasonably upset in New York because fifty three million dollars in prepaid credit cards to immigrants who just got there. Meanwhile, you got how many poor black people, how many poor Latino people who are like, I could have used a fucking credit card. Mm-hmm. I never got a credit card. Right. So and then that also further would breed resentment. And, you know, th- th- there are issues. I think the one area where he would need to convince me more is on that front. I don't really buy like I get it. Three point five percent is the number of people who move, et cetera. It sort of holds steady. But the idea that it's going to be like that for time immemorial, I don't buy that, especially with the increase of climate change and war and all these things. And even if it kicks up one percent, all of a sudden you could have real, real problems. And so I for more of a the reason why I still think borders make sense is just from a practical organizational perspective. That doesn't mean you're an asshole. That doesn't mean you restrict everybody. That doesn't mean you do what both these two fascist psychos are doing named Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and and Joe Joe Biden. Biden. Mm -hmm. But it does mean, you know, proceed with caution. Right. Like I wouldn't go as far as he would go. But then again, 
despite that, I think he made some very, very interesting arguments in his books and everybody should check that out. I mean, my view is basically like to really boil it down is migration is actually a good thing, but you can always have too much of a good thing, right? I mean, there's everything is within reason and within a reasonable time. So I'm sort of like you, like I'm afraid of if you just said, all right, whoever wants to come can come what those numbers would look system like. system would be overwhelmed, How you would deal with it, how you would assimilate people, how you would keep from having some, like, massive reactionary backlash. Like, I, I, w- I would be worried about that. Yeah, sure. just pick a number that's a reasonable number, have the one rule of no violent criminals, and then, yeah, have a sane, logical, humanitarian process where you assimilate people and, you know, we're all better off as a result right. of it. You know, but, this really yeah. is a nation of immigrants. It really is a yeah. nation of immigrants. And, and tr- that's what made it great. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. And I don't think very few people at this point, there are a few, but very few at this point would look back and be like, oh, we shouldn't let those like Italians and Poles. At and the time they were saying that Irish shit. In, but they were saying the, it about Irish and Italian. And now they're doing it now. Exactly. The same arguments that were being leveled against them are that's the right. same ones that they use against mm-hmm. Hispanics. That's right. And so now with the hindsight of history, and now we've basically like, you know, just accepted these people as, oh, well, they're really white and they're part of the culture yeah, and the whatever. Definition. Yeah. yeah. Then, you know, we look back, oh, well, that was different. That type of immigration was different because they were basically like us already. I mean, it's it all is very racially loaded and as in a, well. Of in hundred years, classist, extremely classist. Definitely. Also. In a hundred years, though, Hispanics will be part. Will be considered white too. There's already some of that. Certain ones, I think they say like Argentinians are considered right. Well, there's certain ones that are considered white. Remember after there's uh, white I Hispanic. I think it was and, after the last after 2020. People like um, oh my god, what is that woman's name? Oh, she's behind the um, 1619 project. Nicole Hannah-Jones. Oh, there you go. Is that her name? Mm -hmm. I think so. Anyway, she was saying like, well, a lot of these Latinos that are voting for Republicans are really like, they're really white. It's funny that they make that the like barrier just, for entry like into whiteness. By, Do you vote Republican? Are you a by, fucking asshole? Here, welcome. Of them voting, voting Republican, it was like, ah, eh, you're white now. Yeah. You're voting Republican, now you're white. So anyway, it just shows you how race is kind of bullshit. And oh, it's sh- utterly, moves utterly Moves over time up. and the way people view these groups, et cetera. But, you know, um, I do think you would have a very different policy if your general orientation wasn't migration is bad and it's a crisis, but migration is generally good, but it comes with challenges and we got to deal with those challenges would result in a very different policy. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, to your point about Eric Adams, and the $53 million cards, whatever. I mean, Republicans don't want them to have work permits. I know. So and that's like, the problem, right? That's is, the problem. Right. I'm yeah. like, well, that's cr- like, that's so stupid because then you're just... They have to be dependent. And so you have what no they choice want to do but is making them completely dependent. Fuel the hatred, kick them out. Fuel the hatred, mm-hmm. kick them out. So Here, you're like, the money, okay, you can't them. earn right. money yourself, but if we give you anything, then we're going to freak out about that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's a point there because like you said, there are plenty of people in need in this country who are like, well, where's that for me? So you're not going to give them any chance to provide for themselves. And like what? You just want them to starve and die, I guess, or leave, get kicked yeah. out. Yep. Yeah. In In the scenario that they're in, where now they're in this limbo where they're waiting for the process to determine if they could stay or not or whatever, right? In that scenario, just give them the fucking work permits. Then we wouldn't be having this, oh my God, they're not pulling their own weight. You won't let them pull their own weight. Right. Right? So anyway, that's the gist of it. All right, guys, we love you. Thanks for watching the show. You know the drill. Everybody sign up on Substack. If you haven't yet, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Don't be a mess. Be a non-mess. So please sign up on Substack. Everybody else, you can sign up for free if you'd like uh, and listen to the audio version of the podcast. But that's all we got for y'all. We love you and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace.